passage that Scott read this morning in our service earlier, Psalm 145, that is the passage we'll be working through today. The title of the sermon is A Song of Praise, Theology Proper, and Unity. Theology proper may be a new term to some in the room. Theology is the study of God. Commonly, the word is used to speak of biblical truth, biblical doctrines. Theology proper specifies more clearly the study of God himself. God, his attributes, his work. Psalm 145 is a portion of scripture that praises God for who he is and what he does. Now, who wrote Psalm 145. The psalm is attributed to David, the David of ruin and repentance seen in other psalms. He is the one who brings us this psalm by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in the way our Bibles are ordered, this is the final psalm attributed to David. In Psalm 145, we have a focus on God and praising God. And rightly so. Think for a moment. David's life included real hardship, wicked sin, utter despair, and great repentance by the grace of God. Having received the grace of our Lord, we see in this psalm David focus on God and have passionate praise for God. As we begin... Right in the opening verses, look at the text with me, we'll see this. Verse 1 and 2, I extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. This is serious praise happening here. I will extol you, my God and King. Extol means to praise enthusiastically. This praise is worship. It is acknowledging God to be who He truly is. True praise is fueled by sound doctrine. It acknowledges God to be God in truth. In this, David rightly sees God on his throne says, my God and King. This is a significant statement from the mouth of Israel's king. It acknowledges God, God to be who he is as the King of kings. God is the ultimate King of all creation and all people. God is my King and your King Because he made us and he rules over us, whether you acknowledge his rule or not. David knows, so he rightly acknowledges God enthroned with sound theology, enthusiastic praise. This praise is not occasional, flippant, forgetful, or short term. No, verse 2, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Every day. Every day. David is not praising God only on the Sabbath, though one day in seven is to be set aside for that special focus. David praises God every day, Sunday through Saturday, and forever and ever. This goes beyond this first life even. David knew, like all those who are truly God's redeemed, he would still be worshiping God once David leaves this first creation unto heaven and then in the new creation forever and ever. Christian, you will be worshiping God forever also, along with all the other redeemed saints from all tribes, tongues, and nations and times in human history. You'd be worshiping with all types of people. 
Christ's bride praising Him in unity and purity. We get an amazing glance at this in Revelation chapter 7. Look at verses 9 through 10. It says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is awesome. David, rightly so, praises God every day. He praises the King of Kings who is on the throne and he knows this will be forever and ever. Practically then, we need to learn from David's example here. Where this is lacking in ourselves, we must ask, why don't we diligently praise God in the here and now? Every day. Not just when the saints gather or when you happen to think about Him at random times. No, we must prioritize this. Do we want to focus on God and praise Him more than we do? We must ask ourselves this. Personally, I find that I can get so busy with the doing of other things, or I can get so easily distracted by hobbies and other responsibilities, other interests, and the temporary, that I'm too easily not like David here. I'm not always praising God consistently throughout the day. Therefore, we have the blessing of Christian repentance. God is the treasure. He should be praised rightly and consistently. It should be a true joy to do that. Perhaps you've heard me say before, one thing I realized for myself, that technology, which can surely be used for good, has been at times taking me away from focusing on God and praising Him. I realized, for example, that in the morning, the first thing I would do is reach for my phone to turn off the alarm, And then check my emails, check the news headlines, check my work responsibilities, etc. From the moment my eyes would open, the burden of the business of the day, the business of work, the duty of ministry, the distraction of the world was what I was focused on. And that convicted me. And so that's been an ongoing new course in repentance I've wanted to focus on God before I focus on myself or my work or the church or the happenings in the world. I want the Lord to be in practical terms too. Not just in what I claim, but in reality, my desire, my priority, the strength of my heart and my portion. Now this isn't about just checking a box, a religious works-based box. I want Him to be the ultimate reason and focus, even when I'm on other things, throughout the day as well. It's the purpose we work hard is unto the glory of God. It's the purpose we care for our families unto the glory of God. We're worshipful in the way that we're living. But in regard to the morning, consider maybe waking up and instead of immediately thinking about self or the temporary Maybe praying a prayer of praise to God before you allow your mind to race with the happenings of the world. Perhaps maybe a prayer like this. prayer that's modeled over what we see in Psalm 145, as you'll see. A prayer of praise to God. Praying something like, God, you are awesome and sovereign. I am your creation. I exist for your glory. You deserve all praise, all obedience, all gratitude. Thank you for working your plan for your glory. Thank you for giving me and all other believers you have woken up today another day to seek to live for your name and your plan. You are merciful and steadfast in love. You are just. You are all-powerful, all-wise. You deserve all the glory, so 
Please cause me to honor you today. Please cause me to keep my eyes on Christ today. Thank you for Christ Jesus, the only way to redemption and eternal life with you. Thank you for causing me to trust in Christ. Thank you for your grace and forgiveness. You are the one true God. You are on the throne. Amen. Perhaps some variety of things like that. Church, it would be awesome. Be still, not thinking about your task or whatever else fills your brain as you wake. No, lay there thinking about God and praise Him right from the moment you awake. Set the tone for your day. Plead with Him to align your purposes with His. It can be a sweet time, something like this. It's just one example. Let's pray for one another to be consistent in things like this, praising God every day, consistently, diligently. As I mentioned, I don't do this every day the way David models. I need growth here personally. Pray for me and I'll pray for you. With David, let's be able to say, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Consider what other ways you can make this true for you. Find time to share your thoughts with others and ask them for encouragement in this. Now it seemed to me that the sermon was fitting for today as we begin another year. On one hand, if you were here just a few months ago when I taught in our midweek series on worship, you'll see that this sermon piggybacks that pretty well. The theme was worshiping God with all of our lives, and here we are again with that reminder. In 2022, for as many days as the Lord ordains for each of us, let's be able to say to God, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Now look at verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Yes, and amen, great is the Lord. David turns here to focus on the attributes of God. Some of God's attributes and work are woven throughout the psalm, as you'll see. This is theology proper. When David says, great is the Lord, this is a declaration of a summary of God's attributes and work. Who God is and all he does can be summed up as great. And his greatness is unsearchable. There is no limit to God's greatness. This is why God gets praise forever and ever. There is no limit to his greatness. Let us be humbled by this. Finite creatures like us cannot comprehend the unlimited greatness of God. Let's be humbled by this. Dr. James Dozal came to Disciples Church to teach on the attributes of God, the simplicity of God, for a conference we had some time ago. Some of you in the room were there at that conference. And he explained that we can apprehend God, but we cannot comprehend God. This is a very helpful insight. So let me highlight it here to make sure we're back. And to apprehend something in this usage of the word is to be able to know it rightly, truly, to apprehend it. So we, finite humans, can and must know God rightly. We must know Him truly. Based on His revelation, we should apprehend, we should know correctly what He's revealed, His greatness, who God is, His attributes, His work. But we cannot comprehend. To comprehend something in this usage of the word is to be able to know it fully, exhaustively. We, mere humans, cannot exhaustively know God. We cannot comprehend God fully. He is limitless and infinite. 
limited and finite beings like us cannot comprehend Him. We cannot know Him exhaustively. Therefore, as David declares in verse 3, God's greatness is unsearchable. That's what that means. David's humbly speaking to the reality. With that clarity, let us strive all of our days to know God rightly, to apprehend God. Let us be zealous in growing in our knowledge of God. Let us not follow the trend of having a watered-down understanding of God's truth. Where God's Word has spoken, let us not be uninformed or, worse yet, ill-informed. Let us learn about God from His Word diligently. But let us be humbled by the fact that He is so high and above us and superior to us in every way that we cannot know Him exhaustively. And praise God for this. We get to praise Him forever and ever. We'll never run out of things to praise Him for. We need one who transcends above us to rule and care for us, who knows what you don't know. We need that. Who is God? Theology proper, done rightly, tells us things like God is the Almighty Creator. Sustainer and ruler of everything. He is perfect and the standard by which all things are measured. And much more. David's theology is at play in our passage. David proclaims, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Yes and amen. Now, A God this great, the one true God, has this truth proclaimed to others. Testified to. Look at verses 4 through 7 with me. One generation shall commend your works, God, to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. One generation shall commend your works to another. In these verses, I want you to note here that we're introduced to a third party, so to speak. We have others in creation now mentioned. One generation praising God to another. Who are they? These people who are joining in the praising of God, the declaring of God's truth, are those who are blessed in faith. Look at our verses. They worship God. And there, we're going to see something very interesting in the remainder of this psalm. We'll see something very distinct about the ones in creation who praise God in faith. It is they that God is gracious to, eternally gracious to. See this definitively in verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love Him. But the wicked he will destroy. There's a difference in how we experience, how humanity experiences God. Those who love him, he eternally blesses. And those who remain in their sin, the wicked, he will destroy. They are not the aim for his goodness and grace and blessings forevermore. Psalm 145, 20, just like the rest of Scripture, tells us that there are ultimately these two kinds of people. Those whom God is redeeming unto eternal life, and those who remain in their sin unto eternal punishment. So when we see the ones whom God is blessing, and 
whom are rightly honoring God. We know they're the ones who, as verse 20 states, they love God. Those are the ones God has chosen before time and by His will alone to save in Christ Jesus and to cause their love for Him. It is the redeemed who faithfully testify, enjoy generation to generation, as the verse says. It is the repentant, saved people who are testifiers of God's greatness. We get the high privilege of telling the world about God. We get the awesome joy and responsibility of sharing the gospel and teaching God's truths to others. The saved are blessed to glorify God, and a major part of that is declaring Him to others, generation to generation, and seeking to make disciples of Jesus. See that David has now highlighted the singular himself, I will praise, and the plural, the other redeemed ones from generation to generation praising God. Now in this, he's lifting up the awesome reality of the unity of true believers that we have in Christ. Something very, very special. We all get to sing his praises Unified, humbled, blessed. And that, that's what David is teaching here, declaring here. That is God's plan, His will of decree. They, the redeemed by grace, for example, shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. We join in the testimony of God's work to testify with that. Church, so many of the Psalms include the example and imperative of us being consistent in biblical truth to be biblical truth tellers. See this example yet again today. Think about it. Believers' hearts so full of love for God. Our minds so full of of the truth of God and our wills so full of zeal for God that we are diligent to greatly meditate upon and boldly speak of God, His attributes, His work, His gospel. You caught that in our passage, right? Meditate. David says, I'll meditate on these things. If you're ever wondering what you should be meditating on, the world has a lot of wonky answers and broken philosophies. God's Word tells you what to meditate on and models what to meditate on. We should meditate on God, His being, His work, His gospel, His Word. Let us increase in this love, this understanding, this zeal, this meditation, this declaring in 2022 and beyond. We are seeing in these verses focus on God's great work. Surely God's work of creation show Him as worthy of thanks and praise. Surely His work of sustaining creation show Him as worthy of thanks and praise. But in light of this being a song of praise from the redeemed, what is ultimately in view in this psalm is his work of the gospel of grace. God's work of the gospel, the person and work of Christ Jesus to redeem, most supremely and most surely show him as worthy of thanks and praise. In light of this thought, Old theologian John Gill calls us to think about God's, quote, mighty acts of grace in redeeming his people from all of their sins and from the curse and condemnation of the law and the wrath to come. God's redeemed us from these things. And Gill encourages us to think about the victories which God has obtained over sin, Satan, the world, and death. Yes, and amen. 
believers in all centuries shall commend God's works to another, as the text says, declare his mighty acts, as the text says, speak of the might of his awesome deeds, and sing aloud of his righteousness, and on and on. Let us declare God and his gospel. Now the next thing to note in these verses is again the theology proper. In addition to his great work, several attributes are mentioned there. God's attributes of his glorious splendor, his majesty, his greatness, his fame, his goodness, his righteousness, they're all included there in those verses. So this is so good. God being rightly known by David, the one true God being praised. Now as we move on in our psalm, the praise and focus on God continues. Verses 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Indeed, He is. All of our hope, all of our hope rests on the mercy, the grace of God. We cannot earn or contribute to salvation. We cannot earn or contribute to redemption or reconciliation or even perseverance. We are utterly dependent on God to be gracious and merciful. We, fallen humanity, all men, women, boys, and girls, deserve His wrath, not His goodness, His grace, and His mercy, His patience, and His love. In our sin, we deserve only His wrath. But in light of the gospel, God is slow to anger. In and of himself, by his plan, by his will alone, he has chosen to do what is needed and able to be gracious to all those whom he wills. These are the ones you and I saw in verse 20, the ones that he causes to love him. These are the ones that this is referencing. Instead of cutting off life on this earth, which creation does deserve because of the fall, he is slow to anger, patiently and wisely carrying out his plan to save all those that he chose to save before creation began. In his plan of salvation, God is surely abounding in steadfast love. He loves the elect with an unchangeable love, that is, what, that is ultimately what steadfast is getting at. As Ephesians 1 tells us, God knew and loved the elect before creation, before we ever existed, in which He has an unchanging, steadfast love for His chosen ones for all eternity. It's a beautiful truth. Believers, we can never resist God's love. We can never change God's love. We can never abandon ourselves from God's love. His love is what it is because He is the unchanging God. This love is not based on factors outside of Him like your performance or my performance. Unlike the love we experience and have as fallible and mutable beings, His love is not based on the performance of others. His steadfast love is from His very being. Apply it now. Are, are you downcast, believer? Are you struggling? Are you sick? Are you in despair? Turn your mind and your heart to remember the love of God. The unchanging love of God. In this steadfast love of God alone is rest. True rest. 
And in God honoring rest, He causes and fuels our faith. He brings relief and joy in His timing. He causes perseverance in the beloved. Now where sin exists, where we're headlong into bringing about negative consequences, we reap what we sow, we should turn away from sin that hinders us from seeing and and, uh, experiencing from our end the love of God. We should turn away from such sin and turn to the ever-present, unchanging love of God. God is abounding in steadfast love, His Word declares. Now with that context, let's focus on verse 9 now. The Lord is good to all, it says, and His mercy is over all that He's made. Now there's a few layers to some of these things. You have potentially a a, um, surface or earthly layer to it, and then you have what's more ultimate. Ultimately, the Word of God is always pointing us to the eternal, to Christ and Christ's work and these things. So we should acknowledge that in certain ways, God is good and merciful in general to creation. But we need to be careful to understand even that rightly. First, we must know that none in fallen creation deserve any good or mercy from God. In our sin, we deserve justice and wrath. Despite what we think as humans, despite how our system works in our own mind, the righteous God being disobeyed does not deserve our disobedience does not deserve goodness and mercy from him. Yet in Psalm, excuse me, Matthew 5:45, Jesus declares that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is teaching there that God treats all of his creation better than deserved, including even the evil, unrighteous people. They get to experience the blessing of the warm sun and the blessing of what a good rain brings about. But we cannot push that truth to mean something more than God's word teaches can't push that to contradict God's word. God is temporarily treating the reprobate. Those are the people who will never repent and trust in Christ. He is treating them with a measure of temporary goodness and temporary mercy of preservation, being that he isn't yet pouring out his eternal wrath on them, his full eternal wrath. And while this is the case, Scripture is clear about where they stand in his eyes. We saw it in our passage already. That he will destroy the wicked. Now these are heavy truths, but important because God's word reveals it to us. He wants us to know these things. He wants us to know that he has a righteous, righteous hatred for those in creation that he is not saving. A hatred he is righteous to have because he created them. And he's deserved all honor and glory, and of them he is not, they're not aiming that. They're guilty in sin. They do not love him. They have not honored him as ruler and creator. They have committed cosmic treason against God who created them and owns them. Again, this is what his word reveals to us. He wants us to know these things. See this clear teaching with me in Psalm 5. Portion says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors, deeply hates the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And again in Psalm 11, for example, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. 
We must know. He wants us to know that he has a righteous hatred for those in creation, that he, those that he isn't saving. That's what Scripture teaches. So, temporarily, he has a non-salvific kind of goodness and mercy that has the reprobate experiencing some of those common things like the sun and rain and etc. They're not yet in full punishment for their sin. But this temporary experience, we must know, is the case because he is fulfilling his plan to save all the elect. We must know this. There are people yet to be saved that God intends to save. That's why this earth is still continuing on as it is. So he's forbearing the reprobate, holding back his wrath until all the chosen ones are saved. That is the point of the often misunderstood third chapter of 2 Peter. But the time is running out on the reprobate. 2 Peter 3.7 tells us that the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. God's full wrath is coming. God's full wrath is coming. His goodness and mercy and common things like sunshine and rain will cease for the unrepentant. There will be utter darkness and despair. Now with all that in view, see that verse 9, the Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that He has made, is ultimately focused on His good and merciful work of redeeming His chosen people in Christ. The highest point of this is for the redeemed. Not every person to ever live or every single thing in creation. That is the highest point of Scripture. But you might say, Pastor Matt, it says all. Now indeed, the word all is there. But let us not forget that the focus of the blessing and the source of praise in context in this chapter are the repentant ones, the ones who truly love God. Pulling this verse out of that context, it could seem that all is universal, but the rest of our chapter and the rest of Scripture inform us how to correctly understand verses like this. We've talked about this before around here. Words like all and the world have to be understood in light of the whole counsel of God. We must ask, who are the all being spoken of? Or who in the world or what kind of world is being spoken of in the passage? It is very common that these words do not mean all persons to ever live or even all persons everywhere at that time. But rather they're speaking of a particular people, all of them. A particular people, all of them. Look at just a couple of the numerous examples of this in Scripture. This even works how you would write a letter. You may write a letter and say, get all the kids. You're talking to your spouse, perhaps, and obviously the kids there are not all the kids in the world. It's all the kids in your household or what have you. So this principle is obviously important in how we communicate in general. But I want you to see it in various Scripture passages that you know and affirm this. Luke 2.1 in those days, a decree went out from Caesar to all the world, excuse me, that all the world should be registered. So we have all and world there, right? Did they travel, say, to Australia or even China to number them? No, all of the world here doesn't literally mean all people throughout the whole world. Rather, it was the people within the reach of Caesar's empire. All of them, all the subjects of his kingdom. Consider one more example, Mark 13, 13. Jesus said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is talking to his followers here. The first audience 
are his disciples, and by implication, believers who come after them, like you and me, declaring that Christians will be hated and even persecuted, we see him teach. Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, if we were to take that to mean every single person to ever live will hate you, that clearly doesn't work biblically. That's not what this means, and you know it. People who don't know you don't necessarily hate you. Maybe even better said, people who love you clearly don't hate you. No, the all here doesn't mean all people to ever live. Rather, it highlights that there are people believers will meet that hate Christ and therefore hate Christians. The all is speaking of the unregenerate people generally, not every human to ever live. Now we could go on and on with verses like this. This clarity on words like all and world is very important in our Bible reading interpretation, or what's technically called our hermeneutics, how we read and interpret the Bible. The point is, the Bible's teaching as a whole dictates the meaning of the words that it contains. When Scripture uses the word all, we need to be very careful to let the immediate context and the full testimony of Scripture help us understand who the all is. As we read... Psalm 145, we must know that the all who are blessed and who are praising God are the redeemed. Not every single person to ever live. In fact, again, in our chapters, it tells us that he'll destroy the wicked. So, who is God truly and ongoingly good and merciful to? The redeemed. Who is God abounding in love towards? The redeemed. The redeemed are ultimately in view here. David is speaking about those God is saving. Not only is that clear if we understand the chapter, but is the teaching of all of Scripture. So therefore, verse 9, interpreted correctly, proclaims something like, The Lord is good to all those He is saving. His mercy is over all those he is saving from throughout the whole creation that he has made. That's the highest, most ultimate point of that. Now as we read on, remember this point. Remember that David is a saved man talking about and praising the one true God and the others who are blessed for salvation as he is and praising God as he is, they too are the redeemed. Interpret the verses in light of the whole. Look at verses 10 through 13 now. And see the praise for God continue. In this section, David focuses on God's kingdom. Verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. And all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Now, every other kingdom has had or will have an end. The Babylonian, the Persian, the Roman, and so on. But not God's kingdom. All other kingdoms have kings who are temporary but not God's kingdom. God lives forever. He rules forever. He is the living God, the truly eternal one. He is an everlasting king. His dominion endures throughout all generations. Again, this too is theology proper. God is sovereign, this highlights. He's omniscient. He's Omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's wise, he's eternal. He is truly the King of Kings, ruling eternally. The next verse states again his grace for those who love him. Verse 14 The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. 
And given the context and what we've seen, the all here are those whom God is saving. He surely doesn't uphold all the falling unbelievers. He has wrath for them now and the fullness of wrath to come. These blessings are true of the redeemed. Theologian John Gilligan, he says, quote, This is to be understood of all the subjects of Christ's kingdom, of which the psalmist is speaking, who, who does that which no mortal king can do. A merely human king, Gil says, raises up one and depresses another, supports one and lets another fall. But the Lord upholds all his redeemed people with the right hand of his righteousness. Though they are liable to fall into sin, and in many instances do fall into various temptations and afflictions, yet God sustains and upholds them, that they shall not fall finally and totally by sin, nor be overwhelmed and crushed by their heavy afflictions, The Lord raises and bears them up under all and confronts, comforts, and refreshes them. Some sweet truth in there from Gil. Being fallible beings, even though we're redeemed, we're not made perfect yet. We're declared righteous in Christ's righteousness, but not made perfect yet. And so, as Gil says, we're still liable to fall into sin. And in some instances, we do. We have various temptations and afflictions. But Gil's sweet line that we will not fall finally and totally by sin. You know this, Christian. You've walked long enough to know there are seasons of wicked sin, bad judgment. And yet, God doesn't leave you there. Scripture tells us that he disciplines those that he loves. We have negative consequences, surely, from our stupidity, from our sin. And yet, he uses it for our good. He teaches us in it. He raises us up out of it. Sometimes in a long season, sometimes short. We have heavy afflictions. We're overwhelmed. We're cast down. And yet, he raises us up. This is good news for us, church. Are you currently struggling in sin? Turn to God. God is the answer. He is your salvation. Are you in despair, depression, affliction, bodily ailments, hard circumstances? God is the answer. He is your salvation. He will lift you up in His perfect timing after He's taught you what He wants to teach you. Plead with Him. Show me, Lord, what You're trying to reveal. Remind me of Your good truth. And raise me up. More good news as we continue. Verses 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you And you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. These verses show us again who is in view, as does again the rest of the chapter in Bible. Remember, Jesus is the bread of life. But for who? Only those who trust in Christ, the elect says, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. Of course, there is temporary measure and provision, actual food that we consume as needed, us and others. And yet again, what is the ultimate truth this is pointing to? Christ is the bread of life. Those who look to Christ, who trust in him, he surely does satisfy the desire of all who love Him. He is the good and merciful Savior. He provides all we need, and that is ultimately Him. We need Him. In verses 17 through 20, see again and again how God is gracious to those He loves. 
17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. And he also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. David continues to sing God's praises here. And again, it's based on sound doctrine, biblical truth, theology proper is happening here. See again, many of God's attributes are included in this, such as righteousness, goodness, omnipresence, omniscience, truthfulness, holiness, graciousness, omnipotence, sovereign, love, just. Righteous, wrath, so many of God's good attributes in these verses. God is so good, so great. See his majesty in our passage today. See his holiness. He is so high and above us. David rightly knows the one true God. Sound doctrine through and through here. David sings God praises based on sound theology proper. As we continue now and come to our final verse in the chapter, David finishes like he started but with an intentional change. Verse 21 says, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Verse 1 says, I will extol, right? And verse 21 says, my mouth will speak the praise, right? But look at the next part of 21. Just as David said throughout, he ends this song of praise in a righteous desire for unity in praising God rightly with other believers. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Again, Does every single person ever to live bless God's holy name forever and ever? No. The all flesh here is ultimately qualified by our chapter in all of Scripture. He's talking about all believers. All those who trust in Christ. All the redeemed ones. Let us see then. David is not satisfied. Get this. He's not satisfied to be alone in praising God regularly and ongoingly. David desires that all of God's redeemed join him in unity in praising God in truth. This whole psalm is to declare his personal praise and honor God rightly and to call others to unity in this. We saw it over and over in our chapter. David knows that the righteous, that righteous living is not living alone. Trying to live solo. He knows righteous faith is not a private faith. It's not merely about him and God. No, righteous faith includes Christ's body of believers. Yes, our faith is personal, incredibly personal. But it is not private. We are a part of Christ's body We are, by definition of God saving us into his body of believers, one of many. We are, by definition, not alone. We are, by God's design, called to join other believers in a worshipful life. How fitting is it that the last line of David's last psalm is one that calls together God's people in unity to honor God rightly. Praise Him together forever and ever. Verse 21, let all those who trust in Christ bless His holy name forever and ever. This is the glorious declaration that individuals are saved into unity, into community, into Christ's body. Let us embrace this.
in our flesh, sometimes we run from this, right? We avoid the church or we avoid the conversations. We avoid the accountability. We avoid the community. We avoid the gathering. We're putting aside and denying one of the best blessings. We get to love God together. We get to praise God together forever and ever. Church, I pray we welcome that in the here and now. What God has designed, and it's what our future will surely be, as we saw again in a Revelation passage. Unity with one another in Christ for His glory. Now to close, everyone in the room must consider, on account of our study today, our consideration of this passage and others today, do you personally know the one true God? Do you love the one true God? <clears throat> Are you one that David is describing here in Psalm 145? Are you one who calls on the Lord in truth, who has a Christian fear of Him, who lives in unity with Him and His people? Are you one who loves Christ? The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. It's heavy. Is your heart repentant unto a truth-based love for Christ Jesus? Where Christ's righteousness has been credited to you and your wickedness has been forgiven, reconciled with God. Does your life show the fruit of true saving faith? Actual salvation? Not a mask you put on to come to church or in certain circumstances with others. In Christ Jesus alone is forgiveness, redemption, and eternal life. For His glory and our good. In Christ alone are repentant believers reconciled into an eternally secure relationship with God in unity with other repentant believers. Christ is the good news. He is the only way, the true solution to our wickedness, our separation from God and from others. The true solution to the wrath that is due us for our guilt and sin. The true solution to change us, grow us, and keep us in the loving embrace of God. The Lord is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, as we saw this morning. All praise and honor, all glory to the one true Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word that informs us and convicts for our good. Don't leave us where we're at. It's the blessing of your plan and what you're doing to not leave us in brokenness and despair, to not leave us in sin guilt, but to reveal the gospel Christ's good work to do what we couldn't do so that we would be redeemed and reconciled to you and have a relationship with you forever and ever to be praising you to live for you and as we believers still struggle and stumble and sin in the here and now in this broken world until you make us perfect after this we know that in our struggle, in our sin, your love is ever-present. You're unchanging. What a blessing. We're so fallible. We're so changing. We're so flippant. Oh, we need the one true, all-powerful God to keep us and comfort us and lift us for your glory and for our good, and for the good of others as we share and testify to your truth. We love you, God. I pray for those in the room, the believers, to be encouraged in your truth. They'd be willing to conform their minds, even to the heavy 
truths of Scripture. And I pray for the unbelievers in the room that they would have heard the good news, that be convicted of sin, that you give them new life and give them saving faith so they trust alone in Jesus, repent of sin and live for you. What a blessing. We love you, Lord. As we sing our song, as we move to singing your praises again, we sing this Psalm 145 that you would be glorified, we would be encouraged, we'd focus on the words and consider what you want to teach us and how you want to grow us. It's for your glory. We love you. We pray because of Christ. Amen.